There you have it, Bill Maher. I guess this is the last time we'll be meeting. Have a good life and God bless you. <laughs> if you couldn't see what was happening there, Bill Maher is saying that Jesus, the story of Jesus, is a ripoff of much older stories that say exactly the same thing, all right? So uh, that's pretty common. Um, I was sent one of those, you know, similar to that. And the goal of it is to undermine your reliance and trust in Scripture. That's the goal of it. That if we can get you to doubt and believe that the Bible was just copied, missed, that we're much older than this, then, then you're gonna no, no longer believe and you're gonna walk away from faith. And so what happens to most Christians is this. We'll see something like this and most Christians are nice, so we believe, most Christians are nice. <laughs> so we just believe, and we're like, oh, okay, all right, and, and we don't push back. I say, don't do that. You need to push back, and push back hard on stuff like this. So what Bill Maher did in his video, a guy sent me this just a little while ago, and it's this, and maybe this floated around to you. Story of Jesus, right? Story of Horus, exact same thing that Bill Maher did. It's just written down. And it's showing, look, this story is written 5,000 years ago. Jesus was 2,000 years ago. It's plagiarized, right? Just plagiarized. So what I wanna do really quickly before we jump in, and we're in a series right now, if you don't know, called Good Question. And we're just kind of going over things that maybe you've questioned before. So the question today is real simple. Can you trust this book? Can you trust the Bible, right? Stuff like this gets you to start questioning the Bible. Like, oh man, maybe it's just myth. Maybe it's just plagiarized. So when somebody sends you something like this, what they know is this. Anyone in here an Egyptologist? Yeah, that's what I thought. So we have no way of like evaluating, was that true or not? Because we've never studied Egyptian myths. So our niceness then allows us to just kind of accept what they're saying. I'm gonna say push back. And I'm, I can't do all this because that would take too long, but I'll do enough. So the first thing it says, it was written down for Jesus 2000 years ago. I would argue 2,700 years ago with Isaiah. Um, pretty, pretty clear uh, presentation of Jesus. Um, Horus, they say 5,000 years, uh, probably not, probably closer to 3,000 years ago, but it doesn't matter. Who cares about when it was written down? The second thing though it says is this, born of a virgin. Was Jesus born of a virgin according to this book? Yes, totally taught, 100%, yes. Horus, was Horus born of a virgin like that picture says? Well, let's see here. If you study Egyptian myths, here's what happens. Osiris, who is Horus's dad, was cut up and dismembered by his evil half-brother Set and scattered across the globe, all right? Osiris's sister, Isis, gathered together the pieces of her brother, Osiris, and put him back together. But there was one missing part. You can guess the part that's missing. It was thrown into the Nile River and eaten by a catfish. Sorry. 
So she made a gold member. I am not making this up. <laughs> she made a gold member for him, slept with him, and that's where Horus came from. Now that is an interesting birth. A virgin birth it is not, okay? Completely fake, right? So right out of the gate, like, huh, that's completely fake. Hmm, that's interesting, okay? How about born on December 25th? Do we believe Jesus was born on December 25th? Yeah, one in 365 chance, right? No believer who's like actually a student is arguing the birth of Jesus like that's important for faith. Somehow it's important for them. Well, how about Horus? Was he born on December 25th? Well, number one, it's Egypt. They don't use the Roman calendar. So December 25th means nothing to them, right? And number two, if you really do the math, it's about August 20th, not December 25th. So it's just a complete fabrication, right? So December 25th, uh, no, all right? How about this? Um, wise men came to try to find Horus or Jesus at his birth, right? And I love they say the North Star. The, the picture says the North Star. Like these guys that lived years ago had never noticed the North Star before. What is that star? It's the brightest one. What is, it's just ridiculous. Anyways, yes, the Bible teaches that wise men followed, not the North Star, it never says that, a star that signified this birth. So yes. How about Horus? Zero in Egyptian myth about any wise men following anything divine Horus. It's completely fabricated. There is nothing in Egyptian mythology about that, right? Silly. How about this one? Both of them have to escape some kind of persecution. Herod for Jesus, the god typhoon for Horus. They have to escape to Egypt for protection, okay? So did Jesus escape persecution from Herod by going to Egypt? Yeah, that's true. That's written in the Bible. So yeah. How about Horus? So did Horus have to escape from Typhoon and go to Egypt? Well, number one, Typhoon is a Greek god. So the Greek gods did not come into Egypt until 2,500 years after the myth of Horus. So it's completely like, why even choose Typhoon? Choose at least an Egyptian god if you're gonna make this up. So no, Typhoon was not even around. They didn't even know about Typhoon. There was no such thing, right? So no. And where did Horus live? Egypt. Why would he escape to Egypt? If, <laughs> right? It's just like, you, you read this, it's like, it was written by a two-year-old. Are you kidding me? Bill Maher, come on, give me a break, all right? So last one, and this is the big one. He was crucified, buried, and resurrected, right? That's what Bill Maher says. Is that true? Was Horus, was Jesus, we'll start with him, crucified and buried and resurrected according to the Bible? 100%, yes, amen, totally. How about Horus? Number one, um, crucifixion was not invented until 2,500 years after they say the story of Horus was written. So it was invented with the first known crucifixion we know was in Babylon in about 450 BC, right? So not even around when Horus was around. There's never been a single incident of recorded history 
where Egypt used crucifixion. It wasn't even on their map. They didn't do stuff like that. They threw people in the river with cement shoes. They were mafia style, not crucifiers, right? So what about Horus? What's the story with him? Well, when Horus was born, his evil, wicked uncle, Set, the same one that cut up his dad in pieces and scattered them all around, his evil, wicked uncle, Set, um, sent a scorpion that came down and stung him and killed him. And his mom, Isis, called on the god Ra, and Ra sent Thoth, who came and brought back um, Horus from the dead. That is not the Easter story. Not even close, right? You can go down every single one of these. There's not a single one that's true. But the problem is, we get sent something like this, and we just kind of like, oh, no. I guess it must be true. Because we don't have the time to read through and study. We're not Egyptologists, right? So a guy sent me this a couple of months ago that he's walked away from the faith and this was his evidence of why it's not true. And I went, okay, you wanna do this? Let's do this, okay? It's just completely fabricated. So it comes back to my point today. The question today is, is this book reliable? Bill Maher says it's copied, plagiarized myths. Is it true? Is it correct? Can you trust it? That's our good question for the day. Can you trust the Bible? Okay, so let me give you really quick my story on scripture. Because of my upbringing and that, I had what I will call a very small box for what this book is. And then anything outside of my little small box of what this book is supposed to be in my mind would scare me. And then I felt like it was my job to defend and kind of fight off any of these other views, right? So if you've been with us for any time, about a year and a half ago, I did a series called Ignorance. And in the Ignorance series, I talked about how I see the Bible now. And if you got more questions on this, you can go on our website, go look at previous teachings, and you can just see what I think this book is about, all right? But I'll give you the quick one. I thought this book was a magic book, right? That it was magic. And you could like just thumb through it and put your finger on just a random passage and it would be a word from God for you called Bible roulette. It's not good. You usually die. That's what happens, right? So I kind of had this idea that the authors of scripture, that God kind of would put them in a trance and they would just start riding away in their trance and it was like a while later, they'd wake up and be like, whoa, incredible. I've got to read this. This is amazing, right? I kind of had that idea, like the golden plates of Joseph Smith, that that's kind of all. They, they were just a pen and God bypassed their personalities and their cultures and this. And because of that, there's all these Easter eggs you can discover in the Bible. There's all these codes and all this like crazy stuff in the Bible. So I had that kind of mentality on scripture. That's the way I saw it, okay? Well, it started to cause problems in my life. And here's the one, the first one that caused a problem in my life. It was when I was reading the gospels and I read Mark. And Mark talks about these four buddies who take their friend and they bring him to Jesus. And they want their friend healed, but the house is so full they can't get in. So they climb up on the roof, they pull their buddy up on the roof, they dig a hole in the roof because it was a mud roof and they lower their buddy down and Jesus heals him. Have you guys had, heard that story before? Well, yeah. 
Okay, so Mark says, they dug through the roof. I'm reading the exact same story in Luke. Four friends, buddy, house crowded, and it says they climbed up on the roof and they removed the tiles on the roof and lowered their buddy down. I read that and I was devastated. There's a contradiction in scripture. Because Mark says they dug through the roof and Luke says they removed the tiles. It destroyed me. In my trance idea, you know, it should be word for word exactly the same. But is that what the gospels actually are? Are the gospels a transcript of a video of Jesus's life, right? That they're just transcribing exactly the way things were done by Jesus. No, I'll read for you what John says about his gospel. It's John chapter 21, verse 25. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <coughs> what did John just say? I didn't give you a video transcript of his life. I choreographed his life. I chose certain stories and put them together with my brain, with my personality, right? I produced a book and John says, I have one goal for my book. It's so that you might believe. Not a video transcript, not going into a trance, but saying, hey, I know who my audience is. I know these true stories. I'm gonna select the true stories that I think will cause my audience to believe in Jesus Christ. And what God got was exactly what he wanted using John's personality. Because if you read the gospel of John, it's very different than Mark, right? Because it's his personality. It's because it's his context. It's his audience. And God got exactly what he wanted. So Mark is writing to people who have mud roofs. And so Mark makes sense of the story and says, they dug through the roof. Luke is writing to Theophilus, who probably lives in a big city, and they have tile roofs. So Luke makes sense of the story for his audience. Does it make it untrue? No. It's what you and I do all the time with language. We're always making sense of our stuff with, I talk to my son Myron very differently than I talk to my wife, right? No, you can't have that cookie. I would never say that to my wife, right? <laughs> Okay, that's, I'm contextualizing. We do that all the time. And Bible authors did that, right? So when I taught the ignorance series, we had just gone to this pastor's thing in Lake Tahoe. I know, my cross is tough. And while Charity and I were eating, there, there was other groups there, and we sat with this group, and there were these ladies that every year they come there and they quilt. And so I'm like, cool, let's go see your quilt. So we go next door and we look at quilts. And this lady is like, oh, my grandma made this square. And my great aunt, she made this square. And my mom, she made this square. And I'm putting it all together. Who made the quilt? Grandma? Great aunt? Mom? Daughter? Yes, right? That's what the biblical authors did. They took true stories of Jesus, and they quilted them together with their personalities, with the audience that they were gonna present it to. And it's exactly what God wants, okay? So that's my view of scripture now. These guys quilted and they were brilliant men who loved Jesus and they spoke the truth. 
and they got exactly what God wanted. He wanted John to write John just like John. He wanted Matthew to be written just like Matthew. And he got exactly what he wants. So now I wanna give you some vocabulary because if you don't have vocabulary, have you noticed that you get lost then? Like people start talking, you're like, oh, I don't even know what they're talking about. Like kids come up with new vocabulary. I've noticed that recently. Like they get this new vocabulary. They say low key and sped. Do you guys know what low key and sped mean? Yeah, me either. So I mock them all the time. I'm like, I'm gonna low key sped on your gram, sister. I don't know what I said right there. Maybe it was really bad. My daughter's turning red right now. She's like, oh my goodness, right? You gotta know vocabulary. So I wanna give you some Bible vocabulary that has helped me when I'm talking with people and they're starting to fire questions at me. I say, here's my definition of these terms. And this helps me then explain to them how I see scripture. So first one is inerrancy. And it's a big one and it's all over the place. And I have stole this directly from J.I. Packer. I did not come up with this. I robbed J.I. Packer of it. And here's inerrancy. And this is the way that I see it. An advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that upon inspection, the Bible is found to actually teach. There's a lot of things people say the Bible teaches. It doesn't say it. All right, so that to me is inerrancy. Number two is infallibility. Scripture will not fail in the purpose to make you wise to salvation. That is scripture's purpose, okay? To me, it's infallible in that. And then lastly, phenomenological. This is a big, fat, fancy word, and it means this. It speaks accurately in ordinary language. And let me try to unpack this one because this one trips people up all the time. The Bible uses common language when it communicates truth to you and me, okay? Because the Bible was written to ordinary people, not to critical theologians, okay? So it uses ordinary language, like sunrise. Does the sun rise? No, the earth rotates. You need to call it the earth's rotation. Okay, people do that to the Bible all the time. What, you really can't use the sun rises? Because the Weather Channel uses it. I have read scientific journals that use it, right? When you go to the Weather Channel, it doesn't say, hey, the Earth's rotation will be tomorrow at 7.02 a.m. You'd be like, that's ridiculous. The Bible uses ordinary language like you and I use, why? Because it was written to ordinary people. It was written to you and me so we could understand the truth that God wants to give us. And this becomes very important. People wrote according to the phenomenon that they could logically understand. I'll give you one example. So Revelation 9, John has some kind of a vision. He sees something in the future. He cannot explain what it is. So this is what John does. He uses language to explain the phenomenon he was seeing. He says, man, it's like a giant grasshopper the size of a horse, and it has a tail like a scorpion that can sting you, right? Have you ever heard of that? Now, people for years have tried to say, what is John seeing there? Charles Manson said he was describing a Volkswagen bug. 
Now, I was okay with Charles up to that point, but don't you throw Volkswagen under the bus. You touch the exhaust, it stings you, right? Just nutty. Some people say it's helicopter. No one knows what it is. Let's say though, God had magically tranced John and John had written helicopter. For most of humankind, for the last 1900 years, no one would know what John was talking about. What's a helicopter? What in the world is that, right? But if John instead describes phenomenologically what he saw, it's a grasshopper that's the size of a horse that can sting like a scorpion. I don't care where you go. I don't care what people you talk to. They'll understand exactly what John is talking about. They'll get a word picture in their head, right? Of the phenomenon that he is logically explaining. That is how the Bible is written. It's readable. It's readable then. And then lastly, the Bible just uses round numbers. Is that okay? So if I ask you, hey, how long does it take you to get to Medford? What'd you say? Half hour, you liar. I Googled map that it's 26.4 minutes. How could you lie that way, right? And yet people do that in scripture all the time. You're like, goodness gracious. It's, it's the small box mentality that gets you all tangled up. Well, the Bible is just written in ordinary language. It's an extraordinary book. We'll look at that, but it's written in ordinary language so that you and I could read it and receive God's truth to it, okay? So now I wanna give you some evidence of why, why you can believe this book. Is this book true, okay? And he, here's how people do this. Like if you take any book, any historical book, they'll do this. Number one, how does it agree with the only hard science we have for history? What's the only hard science we have for history? Archaeology, that's it. We have nothing else. So you, you, does it agree with archaeology, number one? Number two, does it agree with other stuff that was written at the same time? That's the second way. And the third one is, does it actually agree with itself? Right, when you look at how, different documents, when you look at manuscripts, does it have agreement with itself? Okay, so number one, archeology. span How does the Bible do in archeology? span It's interesting, because if you can get a little bit older book, 100 years, it was like the Bible had no chance archeologically, right? Jericho was an example. So there's this group of people that are called higher critics, and they, they say the Bible's not true. And higher critics loved Jericho in the 1800s and 1900s. If you read old commentaries by higher critics, they're like, Jericho, see, the Bible's just made up. There's no conquest. There's none of that. You guys know the story of Jericho, right? It's when Joshua is taking over for Moses. Moses was the greatest leader Israel had ever had. 10 plagues, cross the Red Sea, manna, water out of a rock, brilliant leader. Now Joshua's up. His first task is this iron fortress city called Jericho. It was actually the city, the military outpost that was protecting all of the land. And so all the old captains and generals underneath Moses were like, okay, youngster, how are you gonna do this, huh? This is your test. So Joshua's worried. So he goes out and he prays all night and gets a plan from God. And he comes back to his captains and his generals. And they're like, you got a plan? I got a plan from God. They're like, awesome. Is it siege ramps? Or is it battering rams? 
Or is it burn out the city? Or is it we just lay waste to it? What is it, Joshua? And he goes, um, we're actually gonna send in the band. It's like, you mean going by land? No, no, no. Tuba, clarinet, that, that crew, yeah. And what, what are they gonna do? They're gonna walk around the city for seven days. What? Yeah, but they're gonna scream at the end. Really? You guys know the story. And the walls fell down. So that was mocked until, you can get the article if you want, 2nd of February, 1990. It's in the New York Times International, where all of a sudden, years and years, 200 plus years of, yeah, 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 yeah. No, we found it. Yeah, the city of Jericho, it's there. And it's, it's, there's two fascinating things about the city of Jericho that we can't explain. Number one, the walls fell outward. Normally, when you attacked a city, guess what would happen? You'd push the walls over, you're coming in, right? And they said, number two, what's really interesting is this, we found tons of wheat in the rubble. Normally you find no food in the rubble. Guess why? Because you siege a city, you starve it out, you weaken the forces, and then you attack, right? But there was tons and tons of wheat. And they said this, um, the only thing that we can surmise is it was some kind of catastrophe that took out Jericho. Yeah, like the Bible says, the walls fell down and they took the city, okay? So Jericho is like, oh my goodness, so good. The other one, big one was this, called the Hittite people. So archeology span for years could find no evidence of the Hittite people. And so once again, the critical scholars are like, yeah, see the Hittite people proves the Bible's wrong until about the last 50 years. And now they found city after city after city of Hittite people, okay? I can go on and on with this. I have literally no pages of notes of archeology. span I'll give you one more. And this is a test that's done for ancient documents. And it's how does, a, how does that book transliterate? You guys know what transliterate is? It's where you take a, a name in, in a different language and you bring it into your language. It's actually difficult to do, right? That, that's a difficult process. So how does the Bible take the foreign king's names and transliterate them into Hebrew? How does it do on that test, right? So there are 36 instances of foreign kings' names being transliterated from their language, Assyrian or Egyptian, being transliterated into Hebrew. How does it do? Of those 36 instances, it's 140 different syllables. 100%. I'll give you something to compare to. There's a guy named Manithro. He is a Egyptian priest who did the same thing. Is he 100%? He gets 33% of them right. Like, and that's a good, actually a good number for him. The Bible is unparalleled in how it gets things right. So I'll give you two quotes by two guys that are not, they're not believers that were looking for evidence. These are two archeologists. And after doing archeology, span here's what they said. The first one is Sherwin White. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Pretty strong. And here's another guy, maybe you've heard of him. He's a big time dude, William Ramsey. He was a liberal archeologist to begin with. He says this, I began with an attitude unfavorable to it, the Bible. It was gradually borne upon me that in various details, the narrative showed marvelous truths. How good is that? 
Guys that did not believe, the more hard evidence they found, the more archeological digs they did, the more they began to see, wow, you can actually use the Bible as a map to find out where cities and where stuff is at. It's incredible. So the hard science we have right now is saying, man, this, this book is marvelously true. Okay, how about extra biblical? So Bible's written, other stuff is written at the same time. How does the Bible agree with those? I got a bunch of these, I'll give you a few. Number one is the Nazareth Decree. It's written by the Emperor Claudius. He ruled from AD 41 till AD 50, right? Jesus was crucified and resurrected in AD 33. So you're talking seven, eight years within the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. You have this guy writing. The Nazareth Decree was this. It threatened tomb robbers with death especially in the area of Nazareth. Now, why would an emperor way over in Rome care anything about tomb robbers back in Israel? Well, here's what we know. At the same time, Claudius kicked a bunch of people, Christians, out of Rome because they were following one named Crestus, a man who disappeared from his tomb. Guess what? By 10 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there were so many believers in Rome and they were changing Rome to such a degree that the emperor says, you know what? We can't have this happen again. Anyone who robs a tomb because this dude disappeared is gone. And I want everyone that believes in, in this Christ, Christus is the Latinized of Christ. I want them out of my town. Man, that's amazing. Just a decade after the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Josephus, famous historian. He finished his work in 90 AD, a generation. In Josephus's work, you have the entire gospel, every aspect of it, recorded by somebody else. A historian named Thallus. Thallus writes, he's a Roman historian. He writes about in Judea, he lived in Judea. He said, there was a day of darkness and earthquakes. Does that match anything in the Bible? Yeah, Matthew 27, after the crucifixion, it was a day of darkness and a day of earthquakes. And I've got tons of these. Extra biblical stuff continues to complement and show the historicity and truth of scripture. Lastly, how does it agree with itself? So if you're a historian and you're trying to look at the history of, let's say Julius Caesar or Plato, Plato or Aristotle, you are happy with two or three ancient manuscripts. Like that's amazing. If you get 20, that's unheard of to have 20 ancient manuscripts of somebody like Plato or Aristotle or Julius Caesar. And then you are really happy if they're within a thousand years of their life, right? So Julius Caesar, 140 BC. If you had something within wait, 800 AD written, and recorded, he'd be like, yes, thousand years. That's a great, great document, manuscript. So two or three, how many does the Bible have? Do you know how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament alone? 5,000. It's unparalleled. There is nothing like it. People ask me, why, why are certain books in the Bible? Why, why are just those books? I say, because they went viral. That's why you have all these manuscripts. It's the best word to use for it. They just went viral and there's manuscripts everywhere, right? Is it a thousand year gap between our manuscripts? 
Uh-uh. There's a manuscript. It's called, you can Google it if you want to. It's called the John Ryland Manuscript. It dates to 117 to 138 AD. Not millennia, not thousands of years, decades. There's nothing like this. Well, how do those manuscripts agree, right? Because if you listen to certain people, they say, oh, all these manuscripts have all these errors and they disagree with each other. Is that true? Well, you can Google John Wenham. He did this study. He's a professor. And it's called the homogeneity of scripture. How well does it agree with itself? The agreement of all those 5,000 manuscripts and they keep going up every single year. The agreement is 99.99%. There is no other book even close to those kinds of numbers. It's unbelievable. Archaeologically, man, unparalleled. Extra biblical resources, unparalleled. Transliteration of king's names, unparalleled. Manuscript, unparalleled. Is this book true? Can you rely on this? Oh man, oh man. So let me give you one quote by one guy. His name is Arno Penzias. Arno Penzias has a Nobel Prize for discovering the origins of the universe. Okay, he's not a slacker. He's not hanging at home, playing video games and binging Netflix, okay? So he is well known. This is what he says. He says, the best data we have today is exactly what I would have predicted if I only had the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Bible as a whole. How incredible is that? Nobel winning scientist says, mm, mm. It's like this, and this has been said many times. Science has climbed the hill of knowledge. They've got to the top and they found a group of theologians that are already there. Because that's the Bible. It's true on a level. Listen to me. You can trust this book. You can trust it. This book is true. That people do stuff like Bill Maher all the time. Actually ask questions. Research it, okay? So let me give you a quick Parting helps, if you would, if you're studying the Bible. Number one is this. There are genres in the scripture. There are different ways the Bible authors tried to transcribe the truth to you and me. I'll give you one comparison. Genesis 1. What is Genesis 1? Creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Very narrative, like step by step by step, clear, all right? There's another narrative account. Or there's another, I shouldn't say narrative. There's another creation account. Let me read it for you at Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You clothe yourself with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. He, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it could never be moved and on and on and on and on. What's that also? It's a creation account. Is it different? Yeah. Why? Because it's poetry. So people take this little phrase here. He set the earth on his foundation. See? See, the Bible's wrong. That 
the biblical authors believe the earth was set on some kind of a foundation. Well, you know, it's not, right? That's not what it's saying. It's a poetic way of saying, God, you made this earth firm, solid, so we can flourish. It's not like planets that are, that are chaotic and a mess, and it's poetry, right? Let the Bible speak in the language that it's speaking. Don't try to force it to say something it's not supposed to say. It's like this. If you're cooking dinner, would you use a chemistry book? No, but is cooking chemistry? Ah, you take some sodium chloride, what's sodium chloride? Salt, you take some bicarbonate soda, baking soda, add some H2O, heat it and wait for a reaction, right? That's chemistry. But no one's using a chemistry book to cook with, why? Because your goal is for people to eat the dinner and they're not gonna eat it if you use chemistry, right? You use the joy of cooking. Don't try to force Genesis to cook a meal. Allow the books of the Bible to be written and read in the way that the original authors were writing them and their intention. And when you do that, oh, it makes a lot of sense, right? You get these crazy things that people have. I had this guy tell me this. He said, Matt, the fossils were put there by Satan to test our faith. I said, do you wanna nuance that at all? Nope. I said, look at the time, man. I have got to go. I'm gonna comb my hair. I'm gonna do anything but this conversation, right? I mean, really? You just force things into it. Like, it just gets chaotic. You fight battles, you don't have to fight, right? Let the Bible speak in the language it wants to speak. Number two, know this. The Bible accommodates people. So there are stories where God is accommodating people. He meets people where they are at in the midst of their depravity and sin and grossness. Doesn't mean he ordained those or one of those things to happen. He meets them in that situation because he's trying to bring them to a better situation. And Jesus gives the perfect example. It's on divorce. It's Mark or Matthew, excuse me, 19, seven and eight. He says, yeah, yeah. God gave you the ability to get divorced because of the hardness of your heart. But it was not that way from the beginning. What is Jesus saying? God accommodates hard-hearted people because that's most of us. Aren't you so glad that God accommodates hard-hearted people? He's not saying you better get everything figured out before you come to me. No, he accommodates us in our brokenness, where we're at in our messed upness because he says, I wanna bring you to a better spot which brings me to my final point. The Bible has one goal and that's it. There's only one goal with the Bible. It is to bring you and me to Jesus. That's the goal of scripture. So Jesus, after his life, death, burial, resurrection, is walking on this road to Emmaus and he comes up against these two disciples that knew about the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's like, why are you guys so sad? And they're like, didn't you hear? Jesus has been crucified. And it says that Jesus... They didn't recognize him. Showed them from Moses and the prophets how this book testified of him. The goal of this book, the goal of this book is singular. It's to bring you and me to Jesus. So I read the book of Exodus and I love Exodus. It's an incredible story about rescue and redemption and freedom from Pharaohs. But you know what? The book of Exodus is actually about what it's pointing to, Jesus. He is my Passover lamb. I have Pharaohs in my life. People that are addicted to porn, that's a Pharaoh. You need to be set free from that, right? How do you get free from that? You need a Passover lamb. 
So do you literally need to go out and cut a lamb's throat? No, Jesus has fulfilled that. He becomes your Passover lamb. He's the one that frees you from the Egypt of pornography and sets you straight and gets you figured out. The Bible talks about loving God with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul and loving my neighbor as myself. Well, how do I do that? Right? Loving your neighbor is hard, is it not? It is hard. I know your neighbors. They're hard to love at times. They're gonna do stuff to you. How do you do that? You need Jesus. This book is a unified story. And the single goal is this, to get you and me to Jesus. It's all roads lead to Jesus. Okay? So Jesus never wrote a thing down. Did you know that? Most important person that's ever lived did not write a single thing down. How are you and I to remember Jesus? A meal. How universal is that? Right? People that couldn't read, people that couldn't, you know, live in diverse places that didn't have the Bible. Guess what? You can remember me in a meal. But Jesus does this incredible thing. It's Matthew 28. He takes his disciples and he deputizes them, commissions them. You guys now take this story and you make disciples and you baptize and you write it down. And the apostles did that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, in their context, with their personalities, revelation. So that you and I can do what people have done for years now. We read God's word. We allow his spirit to hover over the chaos of our worlds. And as God's word speaks into it, order comes and shalom comes. And we take from a bad spot closer to Jesus. And we do what disciples have done for years. We take the bread and we take the cup. We remember the life of Jesus Christ. And we go from this place saying, Jesus, this week, help me to go make disciples. Help me to love my neighbor in such a way that my life points to you. Help me to love my coworkers and my boss in such a way that it points to you. We do what we do. And the Bible, listen, it's infallible in that. It will accomplish that work in the life of the believer. So grab the elements. Jesus, today, I thank you that you gave yourself for us. You are the only one that has lived a God-pleasing, righteous life. You're the only one that gave your life for humanity. You're the only one who three days later defeated death and the grave. And you are now ascended into the heavens at the throne with all power and majesty. And so I pray for every believer in here that as we eat, as we partake in you, I pray that we would put our faith in you as king, as savior, as redeemer, as conqueror, as the one that loves us, and we put our faith in you again. Let's eat together.
and for the cup. The cup that you said you would not drink of this until you drank it anew in the kingdom. Hope. The cup of the remission of sins, forgiveness. The cup of joy. I pray for your people this morning, Lord, those that need hope, those who look out on our culture and our times and have lost hope. I pray today as they drink, as they partake in this meal, I pray you'd give them a hope that their hearts would not be troubled. I pray for those that, Lord, are under the conviction of sin today. I pray that they would know there's forgiveness, that their sins might be like scarlet, but they can become white as snow. And for those that need joy, that you give us your spirit that produces in us the fruit of the spirit, which is love and joy and peace. May we drink of you. Let's drink together. Amen. So you know what we do here? We pray after this service. We'll sing one song. There'll be people that'll be up here and they want to pray for you. You will bless them and I guarantee you'll be blessed. Come up, get prayer for it. And we also do baptisms. It's right out there. It's identifying physically. It's like Egypt. Man, we need a Passover lamb. We all require a sacrifice. And Jesus is that sacrifice. But then they pass through the Red Sea and the New Testament picks that up as baptism. You get out of Egypt that way almost. It's all right. I am publicly identifying. And my goal and head is to head for the promised land that God has for me. Maybe that's baptism for you. Maybe today is your day. Come, get baptized. You know Jesus is Savior. Now, to me, it's, he commands us to be baptized. Okay, I obey him as king. That's part of what baptism is. That's you today, be baptized. If you're doing well, go make disciples. We've been commissioned by the king of the universe to make disciples. Make disciples today. Would you stand for one final song?